From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, a Bloomberg economics model that projects the probability of a U.S. recession in the next 12 months is now at 100%. After the jobs data, though, over the last couple of weeks, you could have said that that much was clear. So how should you actually invest through an economic recession? Our guests will break it all down. That's right, Sarah. And of course, we'll close the episode with the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. And Sarah, before we get into all that, I want I would love an update on your situation. I know you made a mad dash escape from New York. Tell tell us exactly what you did. You drove all the way to Florida. Is that right? I did. Um, So I decided I had been self-quarantining in New York for quite a while, for over two weeks. So I decided to try to make the great escape. So I did the drive all in one day. I didn't want to go through an airport. So Saturday, 17 hours, woke up bright and early. Uh, We drove all the way down to South Florida. Um, We had to stop for gas a couple of times. Of course, had masks, gloves in uh, certain areas that were a little bit more remote. I think people were looking at us like we were insane. It looked like there weren't many people around, but they were going on with their lives as usual. And there we are Cloroxing the entire uh, gas station, (laughs) Um, but, but made it down. And other than stopping at gas stations, didn't make a single stop. So... Uh, Now I have to self-quarantine by law in Florida, so I'm quarantining for 14 days here, Um, but I'm at least happy to have more space than my New York apartment. So how does that work? They stopped you at the state line because of the... Yeah, so at the the Florida-Georgia border, it wasn't backed up at all. Didn't have to go through any traffic or wait or anything like that, but I had to go through a checkpoint. So essentially you drive through... They ask you where you're traveling from. Um, I told them I was coming from New York. So then they make you circle back around to a different checkpoint area where they make you fill out a form. You have to give them your contact information, where you will be self-quarantining in case they want to check in on you. And you have to sign a form saying that you are aware that by Florida law, if you break the quarantine, you can be subject to a fine or up to 60 days in jail. So I am quarantining. <laughs> I'd- you know, I think, Sarah, you realized that my dad instincts were kicking in on this trip and I was very worried yes. about you making it down. So you did you did tell me when you arrived safely. I appreciate it. As soon that. as I arrived, I let you know. I, I was I was <laughs> I was worried about that trip. But um 
Glad to hear you're safe and sound uh, Thanks, Mike. in quarantine. And I, I think um, our guest is in quarantine not far from me here in New Jersey, where, where we're basically all in quarantine. Uh, but we're very welcome to have her return to the show. She is an investment strategist at Edward Jones. Uh, her name is Neela Richardson. Neela, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you both. And how are you surviving the quarantine? Is every is the family uh, behaving, and are you uh, you have enough supplies? You know, supplies have changed definition. Um, do <laughs> <laughs> we have enough of what we need? And the family's doing well. Thanks for asking me. I have two uh, teenage boys, and so the question is not um, keeping them entertained; it's getting them to talk to you on a regular basis. Um, and <laughs> And so, you know, every so often I just check in their rooms, make sure they're they're still functioning and, and they're doing quite well. Um, they don't seem to be missing school as much as I imagined that they would be. <laughs> well, now they have plenty of time to find time to, to speak with you and the family. That's right. So that's right. We're breaking, can't out, avoid it. breaking out the board games and the puzzles. So <laughs> plenty to do. <laughs> Well, hey, I have teenage girls, so when I hear that teenage boys are quarantined, I'm I'm happy about that. I hope that continues past the uh, past the past the virus. <laughs> Dad instincts kicking in. <laughs> but Neil, I'm curious. You know, as an investment strategist, how do you do your job these days? You must be getting a lot of calls, a lot of people wondering: is the is the bottom in the market in? Is this a new bull market we're seeing? Given all the stimulus that's going on. Um, like me, I'm sure your clients are throwing a million questions at you at once. So what is, you know, what are you saying when you answer the phone these days? Well, you're right, Mike. We are talking to clients. Our outreach to clients and to financial advisors have has amped up considerably over the course of the month. And that constant communication is critical because what we're focused on is not just the markets, but the emotional reaction to the markets. And this is the time where the behavioral economics come into play. All those things that we warn about that investors do, the mistakes investors make, this is the time where they make those mistakes, right? They they try to time the bottom of the market. They try to sell uh, at, at the peak and Along the way, they miss uh, the rally, and we've seen the markets rally over the last uh, few days here. So we're trying to both inform them at a market level, but also make sure that their behavioral reactions are not ones that make them derail their long-term goals. And that's quite a balance. So given that, uh, it's pretty certain, it's virtually 100% certain that we know that we are now in a recession. And sure, this time around, it could be completely unique considering the reasons why we have seen the economy react as it has due to a spreading viral outbreak. But can you maybe just walk us through how markets actually typically react through a recession span from, from start to the point in which you actually start seeing a recovery? Well, as you know, this uh, recession is quite different than what's typical. And if you think about the typical timeline of a of a expansion path, it's really affected by the path of inflation. We see that economies they typically they grow for a very long time. They become overheated. Consumer prices start to increase, and then there's this inflation threat that's an overhang. That's when the Fed comes with their butcher knives and tries to choke off this expansion by 
uh, raising interest rates. We're not seeing anything like that right now. What we're seeing is an economy that's not broken, but has basically put itself into a medically induced coma in order to attack a disease. And that's we've done that by social containment. And the real threat right now in terms of the economy is not inflation, it's deflation uh, and the fact that that people can't work and the economy is tackling a hit to both supply and demand. So the market reaction is actually following, I think, a traditional playbook. We're seeing that the markets uh, typically lead a recession by, for a period of time. Um, and that sense it's correct. Before we knew the extent of this downturn and before we saw those jobless claims, the market had already reacted. Now, the key difference is the market reacted really quickly. It typically takes about nine months to see that drop from a record high all the way down to a bear market, that 20 percent decline. <laughs> this uh, bear market happened in 22 calendar days. I mean, the speed of the market reaction has been really unprecedented. And, and I think that's what's different, along with the composition of this uh, expansion to recession timeline. I, I think that's a great analogy, the medically induced coma, uh, Neil. And I know you have uh, an ep- economics background. So what I, I think the big question I have and, and, and maybe other people have is that, OK, we take that patient out of that coma, you know, and, and quote unquote, reopen the economy. I just can't help but wonder how long the headwinds uh, to the economy last after that process, because I'm thinking, um, you know, it would be a while personally before I would be comfortable, say, going to a movie theater, going to a, a stadium, flying on a plane, going to a hotel, all of those things um, until the vaccine comes, which is you know, hypothetically, I guess still probably at least a year out. So once we do, you know, quote unquote, reopen the economy, how strong do you think those headwinds will be as far as consumer behavior and and getting back to that normal uh, that we we were in before the virus? Well, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I don't know about you, Mike and Sarah, but I want to break out of this house and go to a restaurant and a bar like nobody's business. So <laughs> <laughs> you might see a surge in economic activity. I would love to go to the mall and shop right now. I would. <laughs> there are many things. I'd, I I'm looking forward to the next Marvel movie and seeing it in a theater. So um, you've got that Short Hills Mall near you. I can't blame you. That's a good mall. It's it's the mall I was thinking of when I said it. So. <laughs> But, but I have to think that even these activities are going to be scaled down. Yes, maybe movie theaters re- will reopen, but they'll be at maybe 50% capacity instead of 100% capacity. There, we'll still respect the, the six feet of distance between us, at least initially, until we get enough test kits and security that people are on the other side of, of, of a viral outbreak and, and that it won't lead to this huge con- community contagion that we've seen. And and I think in terms of the market perspective, the market has done a fantastic job of pricing and I think a lot of bad news already. And that's why we can see this huge uptick in jobless claims and the market still rally uh, on a weekly basis. But but I don't think the market has done a very good job of pricing in a recovery 
or the timeline to that recovery. And I think that's the biggest risk. We're in a recession. We know it's going to be deep, uh, but we don't know how quickly the economy gets back online. And that is the huge question mark. You know, I, I have seen others say that it is possible that if we do get a reopening of the economy by, say, June, then the seasonal pickup that you see in the economy over the summer, you still might see that occur because you might see people wanting to go out um, and get out of the house and, and really take part in some of those activities or traveling, but it's yet to be seen. And Neela, something I've been thinking about is the idea that, okay, the leveling off that we have seen in some hot spots as it relates to coronavirus cases. Some investors have said that's been encouraging uh, as it relates to the idea that maybe the economy can open sooner rather than later. But Peter Sacchini, one strategist, he pointed out to me and a colleague of mine that the reason that we're seeing this leveling off is the fact that social distancing and self-quarantining is in fact working. So do you ever think about or do you get worried about this possibility that until we do have a vaccine or science develops further, that this is maybe the only way to combat the spread of the virus, which means the economy won't be able to open wholly for quite a long period of time? It It is a concern. Uh, the medical progress will lead everything. You know, this is not a, a, a problem that the Fed can fix. And we, we saw that the Fed even this week has come out with even new uh, kitchen sink approaches to uh, ensuring the flow of liquidity. This is not a problem that just fiscal dollars alone to consumers can fix. So that will help turn in the economy. Uh, this is a problem that it takes medical ingenuity progress and innovation. Now, that may not just rest on a vaccine. It could be expanded testing procedures or other things that uh, that the medical community with ample help from, from the Fed and state governments can do to build confidence so that we can go outside and not feel threatened uh, just going into a grocery store. And that's going to take some uh, some time, I think, to get over that psychology. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, you you mentioned that uh, kitchen sink approach from the Fed. Our uh, our columnist Cameron Kreis had a a funny line saying, "Well, yeah, it's also the cupboards, the the sideboard, and even a few paper plates <laughs> and plastic cups they dredged up from a closet right. in their laundry room." I wonder, Neela, they clearly are are doing everything under the sun uh, to to add liquidity to the market. Um, I I worry though. If there's a little bit of improvisation and experimenting experimentation here going on, I feel like this this quote unquote whatever it takes approach um, 
is difficult for central bankers, at least in the U.S., and for the government to do when the the recession is caused by sort of, uh, you know, uh, an endogenous financial system issue, like say the the uh, financial crisis. I think, you know, the the public did not have a good taste in their mouth about a lot of those bank bailouts and and the various programs that went on. In this case, it seems since you know it's this virus that was. Th- the fault of no human, as far as we know, um, you know, this real exogenous shock to the economy that it's almost like it's it's freed uh, the reins of the Fed and the government to basically really do whatever it takes. But once we get through this, I wonder where the risk is. And you had mentioned that that the near term threat is deflation. Um, are we again going to be worrying about inflation at the other end of this? Um, and I know people have been worried about inflation throughout the entire bull market that that just finished um, and the entire economic cycle. But is it is there any reason to believe that this time could be different, that that this will be uh, the potential for an inflationary shock once we're through, uh, you know, the, the the economic slump that's being caused by the the quarantines and the isolation is all this liquidity and money being thrown at this problem going to come back and bite us down the line? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to take that in part. I'll start with your your last statement on inflation. What's remarkable about this downturn is it's both a hit to demand and a hit to supply. Now, the global hit to demand, we've seen and we understand, and that's what's deflationary. But what's inflationary is the global hit to supply. I think, I mean, Sarah went to a couple of gas stations. I think gas stations are the mecca for the uh, supply and demand shock illustration. Why? I want to say that at one gas station we stopped out, we paid one seventy eight a gallon. Yep, there you go. There you go. Was that the lo- was that the low of the? Uh... And that was the lowest that we. Saw. We should have had you do a chart, a geographical chart yeah. of all your gas prices. Everywhere we stopped, yeah. I mean, it, they were all very low, but yeah, a couple a couple spots. Remarkable. So there you go. There's the uh, the oil price shock, uh, the the slump in demand, and then the breakdown in OPEC talks uh, recently. Hopefully, that's improving soon, which led to uh, the announcement of more supply. So that's it. But if you go into that gas station and try to buy a bottle of water, uh, a pack of water, you might see $18 water for 24 uh, bottles. So you're seeing some inflation and in, in, in things like <laughs> toilet paper and water and, and, and rice and, and basics. So if, 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 if global demand rebounds, but we still have these supply shocks, you could see the dominance of of slagging demand be outweighed by uh, the dominance of the shock in supply, and that would be inflationary. And so there's a a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of how this plays out into the recovery. And then just briefly, you asked, uh, will we be paying for this somehow, this kitchen sink approach by the Fed and by uh, fiscal government sometime down the road. Well, we already know that deficits were high, trillion dollars as far as the eye can see every year. Uh, Deficits are about to to surge further, though, in the context of low interest rates. Economists are really concerned about incentives. And when you have a kitchen sink approach, you don't think a lot about incentives. Uh, uh, 
in and doing that kind of legislation. And so that could be where the rubber meets the road. Are we changing behavior in unexpected ways by the way that we are trying to stimulate the economy in a time of crisis? So I'd imagine, of course, the inflation outlook, which is a little bit muddied at this point in time, is something you have to take into account when thinking about how to position portfolios going forwards. Uh, but I also want to dive a little bit deeper into something you mentioned earlier in the show was that was you feel like the market priced in the downturn relatively well, but hasn't been as good at pricing in a recovery. And it made me think of a chart uh, that I received from Credit Suisse, where they've been looking at what they call fresh estimates, where they only take into account bottom-up company profit estimates that have mm-hmm. been revised recently. Um, and what they looked at and what they highlighted this week was that because of the falling E and multiple expansion that we've seen this week with the rally is the fact that we're actually at now a 19 times multiple matching the multiple from the February 19th high in the stock market. And it, It's been hard for me to wrap my mind around, but it makes me also think, do you get a sense that the market doesn't really care about 2020 earnings? The idea that, yeah, everyone knows this year is going to be really rough, um, particularly in the next two quarters as we get those results, and that instead investors and the market are looking forward to 2021, 2022, trying to envision what that rebound might look like. I think Steph Curry said it best if, uh, on, a couple of months ago. We should just forget 2020. Uh, that's, what, <laughs> that's what the markets want to do. They want to move past 2020 to 2021. And they're anxious to do that. And, 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 and so, yes, I think a lot of this bad news is, is being dismissed. It's either already priced in or will be dismissed going forward. But it also shows a concern because this bear market rally may have further to fall once that economic news and earnings news comes in uh, differently than the market projects. So they eventually the market, as it looks to the future, which in my mind is 2021, it's going to be anchored by the reality of the present and, uh, and still a slog uh, to get through this year. I'm glad you brought up Steph Curry. There was a great story in the journal about how he found himself quarantined at home and he didn't have a basketball hoop in his own driveway so he had to order one online and it took him like five hours to put together his own, his own that's shocking hoop. i can't believe he didn't have his own basketball i know hoop. right you know uh i envision every single nba player having their own basketball court right, or so. a gym in the backyard i don't even. know maybe some of yeah. us just don't like working from home and <laughs> leave it at work i say leave it in the gym but (laughs) uh you know neil you made a a very i think super important point uh earlier in the interview when you talked about that uh investor psychology um i know my own uh mentality about this virus shifted dramatically this week i had an old colleague i used to work at the associated press way back when and an old colleague and it just then in uh, guy was 51 years old, a marathon runner, one of the nicest people you'd ever meet, um, caught this bug and, and died from it. And it really sort of it was like a gut punch to me. I, you know, I, I'd kind of been dealing like I deal with every everything like this with with bad jokes, you know, and it, it really kind of made my head spin when you start to get sort of um, 
people in your lives being affected by this rather than just watching it on the TV, watching it in the newspaper. And I'm curious about that sort of the consumer confidence element of this, uh, the investor psychology uh, element of this. Um, you know, when you go to that, when you when you're finally allowed out of your house and you go to that Short Hills Mall. And Sarah, I don't know if you're familiar with the Short Hills Mall. It's the only mall I know that has you can take a helicopter to. Um, what? Yeah. That, that's a thing. That's a thing. That yeah. Exists. We'll have to fly you out there sometime. Neil is gonna get her helicopter and pick you up, and we'll we'll go shopping when this is all done. I'm gonna take you both. If on my your helicopter way. looks like a ten year old Volvo, don't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, you know, uh, uh, that first trip through the mall, it, how much is are people's psychologies going to be affected for for years to come? You know, are you gonna be you gonna be doing more window shopping than actual spending at the mall? And, you know, how does that work in the in the investment landscape, too? Are people going to be risk adverse or more risk adverse than they were um, f- for quite a while at the back end of this, uh, in your opinion? Well, first of all, Mike, I, I'm really sorry for your last and I, I'm, I'm really sorry for all of these tragic stories I that I've heard and that people yeah. are being touched with. I think. I think this will be with us for a while. When you think about other tragedies, you think about 9-11, it does change how you view things and it changes how you operate. You think of those 9-11 changes in in New York and Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time. It was profound, the changes at the time uh, that happened as a result of the tragedy. But over time, you kind of got used to them. And those changes began to blend into the background. And I expect that there will be changes made this time around. We will be different. We will shop different. Uh, we will approach crowds differently. Over, It's going to feel strange, but over time, it's going to be business as usual. And it'll those changes will fade into the b- background. Now, the markets, there's two inclinations. We saw them play out in March. First, it was the inclination to sell in panic. Sell whatever you can get your hands on. And that was the most liquid assets. And you saw that really play out in the bond markets. But there's this other impulse, which is to buy. Buy now. It's FOMO, fear of missing out. So you have these two twin dramatic extreme reactions actions, either to sell in mass or to buy in mass. And that's where investors can get caught up because neither of those approaches make sense if you're a retail long-term investor. It's always about the plan. It's the plan that takes the emotion out of investing. And it's going to be having a plan in place, uh, rules in place, helped by uh, uh, local governments and federal leadership that makes people feel comfortable about resuming their normal economic activities. Yeah, you know, th- there's been so many just heartbreaking stories out there. Um, Mike, again, we're both so sorry um, for your loss, but I think uh, we're all going to be a little bit appreciative over the fact that it's a, a three-day weekend and we can all hopefully get some rest and just take it all in um, and zoom with families over over the weekend if that's something we're all doing now (laughs) we're doing it right now as we speak so we are so there you go and hopefully no weirdos show up i keep hearing these stories about people zooming with their class or or church group or something and some random (laughs) weirdo i think random weirdo add normalcy (laughs) to to what is (laughs) 
<laughs> because it, it's nice to know that they haven't gone away. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of random uh, weirdos, I think that's our segue, Sarah. <laughs> that is. I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> we're no random weirdos. We're, we're, we're professional weirdos when it comes to the craziest things we've seen in markets this week. So, Very well. so Sarah, what do, you, what do you got? So I, I'm just going to bring it back to uh, the kitchen sink that the Fed has now given us because it really is just pretty crazy. On, on Thursday, uh, when they made the announcement of more stimulus that they would provide, the fact that they are now buying U.S. high-yield corporate bonds. So the announcement reads, uh, the preponderance of ETF holdings will be of ETFs whose primary investment objective is exposure to U.S. investment grade corporate bonds, and the remainder will be in ETFs whose primary investment objective is exposure to U.S. high-yield corporate bonds. In a way, it's like, what's left now? Is it, is it just stocks? I mean, Put the junk it, in the it, trunk. That's pretty much all that's left. Yeah, the junk in the trunk. Um, but it's, it's crazy. It's pretty amazing. Neil, what do you think about that? This kind of goes back to what I was talking about in that the, the potential risks, and I hate to tread out the old word, moral hazard from this kitchen sink approach. Um, it, I, I think clearly there's an urgent need for the Fed to do this in the junk market. Um, was this inevitable? And is is it, a, it, does it bother you at all? I, I think what is being done to manage a crisis doesn't bother me. Uh, but the future does. We've seen the Fed having a lot of trouble prior to this pandemic unwinding uh, the QE that it did as yep. a result of 2008. Now they're just blowing up their balance sheet. And it's hard for me to imagine a world that in which the Fed can comfortably unwind a lot of these assets. Now, many of them are short-term assets and they will just roll off. But the Fed is going to be uh, having this huge trillion dollar portfolio, I think, for for a decade or more, uh, because it's been uh, it hasn't been able to un unwind successfully, even in the best of an economic expansion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's once it's in, it's hard to take it out, I guess. So unless you like you said, it rolls off and you know, eventually a lot As will we roll witnessed off. over the last decade. Yeah. But all right, uh, Neil, you're a veteran to the show, so I know you came prepared with the craziest thing you saw. There's so many week. crazy things. It's hard to just choose one, but I'm going <laughs> to stick with the bond markets and I'm going to stick with this conversation about the Fed. The uh, record level of investment grade corporate issuance that we saw this week is really outstanding. It's like the, the corporate market alternative to stockpiling toilet paper. It's just this run on credit <laughs> while you can have it. It's <laughs> You have access now. You don't know what the future is. So let's just get as, as much as possible. And it seems that's what uh, corporations are doing who have the, the investment grade rating. So interesting. Um, it goes right back, Mike, to to your uh, insights about what's going to happen over the long term. Yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy with the toilet paper. It's amazing, though, that that hunt for yield is still there, that the demand from investors is still there to to allow this. I mean, I guess when the Fed is, is, uh, the Fed's, when buying, the Fed's right? buying, you know, it's, it goes back to why fight the, why fight the Fed, but pretty fascinating, uh, uh, phenomenons we're seeing. All right. Uh, Sarah, as you know, for the crazy things, sometimes I, I go to the alternative asset classes. Um, and I'm going, and when I say alternative asset classes, I'm not kidding this time. I'm going to, 
I'm going to take us to the exotic animal trade. Um, and I'm assuming... Are you go- are you going to bring in some Tiger King right I, now? Or... You know it was coming. <laughs> uh, have you guys watched the Tiger King? This is what I've, I've been doing all quarantine <laughs> long. Well, I guess not really because I got through it in a matter of two days, but it, it's helped a couple days at least. <laughs> so... I think it was it was inevitable that eventually our president Donald Trump would would somehow get involved in the Tiger King saga. I mean, it, <laughs> that was pretty predictable that those two paths would collide. And now there are reports out there uh, indicating that Trump is considering pardoning uh, the Tiger King, uh, Joe Exotic himself. Um, and like I said, this is an alternative asset class, uh, exotic animals, so uh, it counts. I don't know if that guy from Hong Kong is going to call in and say I'm cheating again, but I, I'll stand by this one. That you're so. cheating. Did did either of you see uh, at one of the press conferences, there was a reporter who asked uh, President Trump about Tiger King and asked him <laughs> if he would consider pardoning him. And there was a nice little back and forth. That's, that's uh, <laughs> Some comedic relief. I, what do you guys think? It was a Joe Exotic pardon. Is that going to help Trump's reelection chances? Having never seen the show, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what actions are being pardoned, but <laughs> so I'll reserve judgment. <laughs> well, you'll have you'll have to go watch it, Neela. It's it's pretty unbelievable. I don't know. I think I think Neela's proven she might be the only one among us with some actual taste in television. That fact that she hasn't hasn't seen. That. <laughs> Neela Richardson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's always a delight to talk with you both. And you take care, please. You too. (laughs) What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.